It's my great pleasure to have on the line with me Felicity Ruby, most commonly known probably in this part of the world as uh, an advisor previously to Senator Scott Ludlam, currently doctoral candidate in the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. I drive around Sydney with an RTR sticker on my car, so it's, <laughs> it's only right that I should be on it every now and then. <laughs> Absolutely. Having a chat to you today about your PhD dissertation. I've just uh, grabbed from your from your website here quite likely the most secret agreement ever entered into by the English speaking world. It sounds like yeah. something our listeners probably should know about. Talk yeah. to us about it. Well it's um, the five eyes is what it's known as um, in a generic sense but the the actual agreement that was entered into in 1947 is called the UK-USA agreement And it kind of formalized things that had been happening all throughout the war in terms of sharing technology, intelligence, gathering, sharing um, content that the allies had gathered and breaking codes. And it was kind of a a very formative um, uh, experience for the people involved and for the institutions involved. Um, And they carried on after the war had finished. And they also kind of carried on their justifications and the sense of urgency and their sense of being divorced from oversight, um, the secrecy that war um, might have justified, they continued on in peacetime. And so it's a strange relic of the Second World War um, that has morphed and and grown and deepened um, very much. Des Ball, who we recently lost, um, a great academic at ANU, he talked about it as an intelligence community and he described that there's kind of not just one agreement, but there's several hundred ties that bind. These are procedures and agreements, memorandums of understanding between various agencies in the five countries that make up this agreement. That's the US, the UK, Australia, Canada and New Zealand. So the English Christian white invader European nations. So... Um, that's what I'm studying. What is Australia's role in this? What has Australia done? What has Australia lent? Um, what has Australia um, told its people? So it's pretty fascinating um, and it, it covers a long time. So I'm trying to kind of look at it before and after the Snowden revelations. What's changed? Quite a lot has changed. You, you mentioned Snowden there. What's your source of information for what, for what you're doing? Like um, obviously it's such a top secret uh, business this. Are there any you know leaks from WikiLeaks? How are you going about your research? I'm really interested in what a citizen can know. And so I'm looking at information that's become available, but I'm not trying to, you know, break secrets or get secrets. Um, That's also the way you get through university ethics processes. But um, um, we've learned about the Five Eyes quite a lot from Snowden because prior to Snowden's documents becoming available, we thought and we suspected, but we didn't have proof. Um, Someone called Duncan Campbell, who's been trying, a journalist in the UK who's been trying to explain and expose and describe and understand this Five Eyes and what it does, um, said on one of the, you know, soon after Snowden's revelations came out, um, you know, Five Eyes and Echelon confirmed it only took 23 years. So, you know, not many journalists or academics have that kind of patience. And so the dribs and drabs of information that's become available, the isolated scandals or um, or um, whistleblowers that have come forward at different times in different countries. This 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 intelligence alliance is so powerful 
and so large that it can just wait out these kinds of scandals and just continues to do what it's doing without interruption, pretty much. Snowden has um, kind of given us proof of the term Five Eyes, of some of the procedures and ways they work together, the ways they share information. If you compare maybe Chelsea Manning, a whistleblower who described what was going on, Snowden, also a whistleblower, described how, how information is collected. Uh, Michael Hayden, the former head of the NSA, former head of the CIA, he, he described what Snowden did as he exposed the plumbing, how, you know, like how the, the machinery is connected up. And in one of the early um, Snowden slides, in the PRISM slides, um, the slides that, that showed the collusion and the collaboration, the cooperation of Facebook and Google and others with the spying of the NSA, um, we have this word Taurus. And Taurus is a kind of satellite, a kind of antenna, I mean, um, one of which is at Pine Gap, one of which is at Memworth Hill, one of which is at Bude, and one of which is at um, Wahopai. These are all Five Eyes bases around the world. And what you usually see at these bases are these kind of golf ball, um, you know, dome, ray domes, and they're covered up for environmental reasons, but also to hide what satellite that antenna is pointing at. But with a Taurus satellite, they can because of the shape of them, um, they can pick up ten or twelve satellites. So um, it, it was it was kind of a link that that happened that we saw these designations of the documents that Snowden provided, but also um, you know facilities and infrastructure that's here in Australia. I'm interested in drawing to our listeners to help them understand how close to home this is. What do you know about the the facility near Jolton? Yeah, Code Arena um, was a very, very um, important echelon base. So echelon was the 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 first kind of mass surveillance exposure. Um, um, what, prior, the biggest, I mean, prior to Snowden, um, an examination of the echelon system, which was, you know, by the Five Eyes, picking up everything that they possibly could from all streams of communication, from satellites, from te- telegrams to te- telephones to fibre optic cable. Um, interestingly, a, a very important European Parliament inquiry into echelon kind of confirmed that it existed, confirmed that it was mass surveillance, confirmed that it was economic espionage um, and um, came out with a really good resolution and a great report on the 5th of September 2001. So six days later, a lot of that material was was forgotten. Um, But the Cogerina base north of Geraldton um, is linked up in that echelon system that was described by Nicky Hager in his book Secret Power. very, very well. He described the ways in which um, all of the different bases around the world that are focused on satellites, on gathering anything they can, hoovering up anything they can, um, and it's all put through this thing called the dictionary. It was called that at the time, 96, his book came out. Um, and so that's a, 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 a piece of software that can sort by word key terms, key selectors, and then analysts look at only from that bulk what has been whistled down by the keywords, and then a lot of that is discarded. And then um, reports are written and uploaded to, to the NSA in the US um, in a standardised form. 
So not only is the infrastructure there listening and picking up everything in our region that it can, the Five Eyes is an agreement that divides geographically the world and each of the five countries has responsibility for gathering and sucking up the information in that part of the world, putting it through the dictionary, analysing the bits that matter and feeding them up to, to the NSA. So Kojarin is a key part of that, um, looking at the Indian Ocean um, facing countries and uh, that's that's what it's there to do, to, to listen to our neighbours. So all of this is absolute madness, no matter yeah. who's in power. But, uh, you know, we can't have this conversation and not point to the crazy person who's in that seat, in that president of the United States, uh, has control of that Twitter account. This crazy, crazy person. Talk to that for us. Okay, yeah, so this, like, this, what some of the most dangerous um, capabilities were sort of set in train by Bush and enhanced and perfected by Obama um, and are now in the hands. You know, the most sophisticated spying apparatus in the world is now, um, you know, in, in the hands of that Twitter account holder. Um, mm. But that's the nature of, of the the arrangement. It, whoever, whoever um, you know, is in that seat has access to quite a lot of power and a lot of information and, you know, the most powerful intelligence agencies and the most um, resourced intelligence agencies in the world that have reach all over the world. And so that makes us complicit in decisions that are taken. Um, you know, every Tuesday morning, Obama would sign off on a list of human beings who hadn't been subjected to any judicial or legal processes, you know, sentenced them to death by drone. And so that happened routinely. That became something that was just normal. Um, and on it goes, and on it goes. So um, those drones are aimed and targeted using the entire Five Eyes and, and including um, bases on our soil, including Pine Gap in particular. Um, so while the Snowden revelations and what WikiLeaks has been trying to tell the world about mass surveillance is it's disturbing, um, it's been going on for a long time. Um, we know more about it because of WikiLeaks and Snowden um, and it makes us all complicit. But what I think is often missed is that you know people know the NSA now, that's a household name or more known than it was. It used to be the no such agency, it didn't exist mm. like some of ours. But actually, it can't do what it does without the cooperation of all of the five. So that global mass surveillance system, it, it, we, we are very much part of it. Australia is very much part of it. So we see our uh, Prime Minister Turnbull going over and fawning. What you're talking about here in this, this agreement, this secret agreement, puts in context why the fawning is just so unquestioned. And what's it take to change or to to reorientate this this relationship we have with the mm. US? Like, is it is is there any any scintilla of of hope for some differentiation there or some mm. something better? Yeah, look, I, I think um, it, it's really depressing watching the bipartisan collusion, bipartisan silence, bipartisan obsequiousness, bipartisan um, hopelessness when it comes to having an independent foreign policy for our nation, having an independent defence posture. Um, it is depressing. Uh, you know, the, the thesis allows you to go down all kinds of rabbit holes and I've really enjoyed, you know, reading the Hansard from when the ALP used to have 
just have, have, have a bit of a backbone about some of these issues. It was a short period. It did happen, though. It, it really did happen, where there was a bit of pushback, where there was a bit of questioning, where there was a, hey, about our sovereignty type questions, um, about the implications of Pine Gap, about um, the involvement of CIA in our domestic politics. Um, that existed in the past, but it was so massively punished that um, the ALP are worse, almost, than the, the, than the coalition in um, articulating any kind of independent thinking at all when it comes to these kinds of things. Are you referring there to perhaps a time when Gough Whitlam uh, was, uh, was, as Pilger would suggest, and probably some others, that uh, uh, was behind the actual firing of, of Whitlam? Is that how far that kind of history goes of Labor challenging the alliance? Yeah, look, I think that, yeah, I, I was talking about the Whitlam era. Yeah. Now, you know, Whitlam's such a fascinating character in this regard, and you know, really was such a high point on, on so many levels um, in our you know, national polity, and not because necessarily he was such a great radical guy, but because it's been so woeful. Um, but it, it, did, it, it was a peak of saying, what is in our national interest? Let's try and articulate an Australian foreign policy and an Australian, you know, what, what's in Australia's interests? And um, so, yes, um, I think that... Um, you know, I, I was referring to the Whitlam era and also a little bit before, you know, um, when Whitlam was in opposition um, and when the Pine Gap Agreement, for example, in 1966 and 67 was announced and debated in the Parliament a bit. Um, there you see, you know, some, some, some proper questioning, some proper into, intelligent ideas, mm. <laughs> you know, being exchanged. Um, so, you know, was the CIA behind the um, the, the coup? Listen, it, 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 the the questioning of Pine Gap um, and the, the 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 debate in the media about the role of the CIA in Australia um, played an enormous part in in, the, in that debate. Uh, a guy called Paul Kelly brought out a book on the 40th anniversary, or was reissued, rewrote his book. Um, that no longer had the security chapter in it that I've just read of his, you know, 1979 um, version. Um, you know, he's now saying that anyone who thinks that the CIA had anything to do with, with it, you know, is just someone who'd studied the humanities. He just makes some ridiculous insults um, in, the, in this new book. But in the past, he, he acknowledged that, yeah, it definitely played a role. Definitely played a role. But if you look at, say, WikiLeaks, if you look at the... It takes the time to look at what we can know and learn about our country from WikiLeaks. It's amazing. Um, you know, the debate within the ALP um, wasn't so pure always. Mm. There's one speech that Whitlam is famous for giving at the 1975 ALP National Conference where he, he kind of pushes back. It was a very tight vote about closing Pine Gap. Um, and he said, look, these are not our secrets to share. Um, he, 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 he explained that it was really very much a US base. Now they try and say that it's a joint base. Um, and he um, said, you've got to trust us. You know, no, we're not going to close this base down. Later on, he said different things about that. He questioned it more. But, um, you know, you read on WikiLeaks, that speech, that speech of Whitlam's was cleared by this mission in, in Canberra. You know, Whitlam didn't send it to them for clearing, the department did, but th that was routine and that they really were pleased by that, that they were involved to that extent. Well, you know, that's pretty scary, actually. So there's, there's, there's lots of things in the past that you can look to, but right now today, what is Pine Gap doing today? You know, Pine Gap is at war. Pine Gap is always at war. Pine Gap is, is, um, is listening and gathering and aiming drones and 
watching nuclear um, weapons and helping prepare and target nuclear weapons should such a, an, an, an event happen. Um, and it's capturing real-time footage and information across battlefields, in terrains of war, in the countries that the US is at war with. So um, while it's this silent place or while the kind of controversy might seem something of the past, it's just a very present everyday reality in our polity that this thing and, and what's happening in Geraldton is, is happening. So this is a very kind of, you know, real and present danger. So we actually have in, in this part of the world, uh, and we've kind of had a few conversations around this over a recent month or so, we had Joe Valentine on the show talking mm-hmm. about the IPAN. Talk a bit to, you know, what, what are the the other threads of uh, of movements at the moment in, in Australia that people mm. can, can look towards and, and get engaged with? If you go to a website called closepinegap.org.au, you can read a lot about um, Pine Gap, but also about the court case um, that's ongoing right now in which six Christians face seven years in jail. Seven years is a really long time for playing a guitar and a viola um, in a restricted zone but that is and praying, um, but that's what they were doing. At the um, September 2016 protests against Pine Gap, which is one of my PhD case studies, so I was there being all you know, activist-y but also <laughs> academic-y, which was a bit weird, um, the, that was a that was the latest manifestation of of protest against that facility, and it was really interesting the different motivations that brought people there. Most people were there not because of surveillance. It is a surveillance base, but they weren't necessarily putting the connections between surveillance and war together at that much. So they were there to protest wars. Uh, the weapon of concern was was no longer like nuclear weapons at the top, but drones, drone warfare. Um, extrajudicial killing, in other words, and and nuclear weapons, and then um, democracy and sovereignty, and then further down was surveillance, which is pretty fascinating, and I think I have some theories about why that's the case. But, um, yeah, several hundred people gathered. IPAN had a conference there, and this action was taken. Um, action was taken in 20, 20, 20, um, 2005 by four, pe- four Christians, and one of them repeated this action and also brought his son, Jim, um, in between the 2005 and 2016 action, um, the legislation was changed so that certain arguments can't be brought up in the court anymore, um, and so that prosecutions and like very punishing and and deterrent making prosecutions could could go um, forward. So I strongly suspect these people are going to go down for some years for having the temerity of caring about people in the Middle East or Australian sovereignty and symbolically and peacefully and with musical instruments and with prayers um, protesting Pine Gap. And so that's going to be, I think, an ongoing issue. There's a real build-up of a, of a communication and awareness campaign um, and um, they're they wanting to put Pine Gap on trial and in, and in you know, in, in linkage, um, the Five Eyes Alliance and... And, and, and the ANZUS Treaty, the US alliance and its implications. So there's, there's kind of movement there. IPAN is, is, um, is an interesting group of people and organisations, 45 organisations that have come together to say, hey, enough is enough. We need to really consider our independence um, and stop being um, made uh, complicit in US wars that actually very much reduce our security. Um, and so those two things, I think, are, are kind of pretty interesting. WikiLeaks continues, and um, supporting WikiLeaks is always a way of shining a light on on the surveillance state. Um, and you know, 
next week Chelsea Manning gets out of jail. So that's just wonderful. So there's, there's, there's different campaigns and individuals that you can support. Boss, I haven't let you on the phone. <laughs> what is your position at the moment on, on WikiLeaks and Julian Assange? I mean, this is a, an individual that is a problematic individual. There's, of course, you know, the allegations of sexual abuse. There's uh, feminists around the world, obviously, that are calling into question any support of him uh, just on the basis of that. There's obviously, in more recent history, it's, uh, many uh, to consider a uh, personal vendetta against uh, Hillary Clinton that may have actually played a part in getting this uh, horrendous uh, Donald Trump over the line. You know, there's the WikiLeaks party, of course, uh, you, you, you you, know, you were at the time an advisor to Scott Ludlam. You know, the party kind of uh, shafted Senator Ludlam uh, is probably a nice way of putting that in a nutshell. Basically, that whole process, you burned a lot of bridges with activists here in Australia. I noticed that you do still support him, and there's obviously so much uh, important work that is uh, that he's done and continues to be done. But so how do you, I guess, uh, reconcile that, that wrecking ball that is uh, Julian Assange, a wrecking ball for the bad guys, and, but also kind of a bit of a wrecking ball for the good guys as well? Well, um, I might have a slightly different view. Um, while I agree totally that the WikiLeaks party was an atrocity exhibition of criminal imbecility, um, I um, and it continues to just be an embarrassment to the really good work of of WikiLeaks and its function. I think it was an aberration and a mistake for a political party to be made out of a publishing organisation, and um, that's it, it, it's fine to you know like it is in the, in the past um, now. So yeah, I, I acknowledge that that was a that was a disaster. But I don't think that you can blame a website for the actions of the US voting public. Mm. So 58% of white women voted for Trump. Um, Very much less than 50% of people who were eligible to vote rocked up to vote. So Chomsky, you know, really, um, uh, you know, had it right, I think, in saying we really need to like look at the U.S. voting population as responsible for what happened in the election. Um, there's many factors that go into the what informs people's decisions to vote and not vote. Um, I'm very glad we live in a country where voting is compulsory. I think that's a really positive thing. Mm. You, you, I've looked at a lot of informal votes, um, and uh, you know you can always exercise your you know desire to not participate in that way. So um, I don't think that it's legitimate or correct in any way to blame WikiLeaks for Hillary, Hillary's result. Hillary was hung by her own words and the corruption of the Democratic Party machinery that cooked the nomination process to such an extent that five people had to resign. So is it the people who expose that behavior or the people who are doing that behavior who are responsible ultimately. Um, I think possibly the Democratic Party machinery won't be able to be corrupted in the same way again. I think that it might be inoculated against that kind of deep and abiding corruption that was exposed through the shafting of Bernie, who never had a chance. Mm. Who never had a chance. Now, he was a great candidate and he was saying some amazingly positive things and he would have had a bloody good run, I'd say, mm. um, against Trump and we would be in a different situation if the Democratic Party wasn't 
so deeply corrupt and so deeply um, embedded and entwined with people who have, um, you know, so-called smaller liberal and progressive politics and ideas, leaders, academics, media um, personalities, you know, the elite, the elite who think they can do it better and who, who, who feel like they are entitled to have, um, you know, to, to lead the free world, so-called. So, so I think, you know, all those things got to shake up. That doesn't mean you support Trump. So like, I've had a lot of arguments with people who say, Julian's a Trump supporter. It's like, well, he either called him syphilis or gonorrhea. I'm not sure which one, you know, is a, is a compliment. You know, when, when, he, when he said, which, which candidate would you prefer? He said, it's like choosing between syphilis and gonorrhea. Um, Trump might may have liked WikiLeaks, but WikiLeaks never expressed a particular like of Trump. Um, and Trump's changed his mind, of course, um, oh, and <laughs> is is going to go after the Trump administration is going to go after uh, you know WikiLeaks like like the Obama administration wished it could. Mm. So yeah, I don't I don't think that it's fair or right to say that WikiLeaks. Um, responsible for Hillary's demise. I think Hillary has a lot to answer for um, and was exposed. And so was John Podesta. And these weren't just the emails of an individual. These were the emails of power in operation, in sync with banks, in sync with major corporations. This is not just a story of of some guys, hi, how are you going, love John. It was, these were, you know, this, this, is, this was unveiling you know, like very, very historically diplomatic, politically relevant, urgently relevant information about how our world operates, and so um, I think that the I think that the political debate is enriched by the truth. And if you would prefer that it is not, if you if your preferred candidate is a criminal and you'd prefer to call her something else then that's your right to be delusional, to be, you know, um, to be, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know another way of saying it, delusional. But it, 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 doesn't, it, it doesn't make it true. Yeah. It doesn't make it true. So I feel like, yeah, I mean, it's a bit rich to say a guy with a website um, uh, is responsible for um, Trump being in office. I think there's a lot of factors and um, a lot of factors that are domestically about the United States and poverty there, terrible poverty. In terms of the feminist analysis of, of Julian, I've, I'm, I'm, I've done a lot of, of, of feminist work and writing in my life and I've really, really thought about this quite hard. And it's not um, all feminists who take the position. I mean, a, a group called Women Against Rape in the UK has said, this guy, this, this, this isolated and um, particular focus on one individual, at the, like there isn't an ep- like, there's an epidemic of violence against women and... There's this one exceptional case where it matters to states. There isn't a manhunt. There isn't a lot of people being dragged over at the border. Um, There isn't a lot of extradition requests going on for crimes against women, frankly. And if they were, fine, Julian can go in with them. But it's not. This is profoundly political targeting. And I've read every single thing you can about this case, the good, the bad and the ugly. And he happened to have quite a lot of consensual sex with both of those women. Mm. And at no point did either of those women say, no, stop, I don't want that. That matters. That happens to matter. As a rape survivor myself, as someone who's worked with a lot of, of rape survivors, it happens to matter if there's no consent or no consent. That's not to say that there can't be coercive and in the continuum of violence against women, that there isn't unacceptable behavior. 
that is happens prior to consent or with the holding of consent. I'm not saying that there isn't. I'm not saying that there's lesser or more crimes. They're crimes against women, but he happens to have had sex with a bunch of with, with these two women, and they they didn't say no. So um, there was a lack of a presence of a condom in in one of the encounters, and. Um, I, I think that in the age of AIDS, that's that's a bit serious. I don't think that that's rape, though, and I don't think that that's um, a lesser rape as per um, Swedish law. I think this is really taken back. The, the campaigns and the, the things that I really care about in terms of violence against women, this is the utilisation, the instrumentalization of feminist goals, of feminist laws, of feminist um, ideas for profoundly unfeminist ends for the punishment of someone who's exposed militarized masculinity like no one else, actually. WikiLeaks has shown us more about masculinity in the boardroom, in the corporation, on the battlefield, in the, in the embassy. We know there's, there's just troves and troves of gifts about how power really operates in the world given by WikiLeaks. And how power really operates in the world is that you, you, know, you punish the messenger. A while ago, WikiLeaks released some... Um, information um, that actually Barrett Brown um, talked about just yesterday on Democracy Now!, the, the strategies for destroying WikiLeaks, for destroying Glenn Greenwald, um, any supporters around WikiLeaks. And like those, those strategies that Palantir came up with, I mean, they, they, they read like you know, very recent history. All of those things have come to pass. Um, isolating and attacking and undermining the individual of Julian and his supporters by whatever means necessary and hounding him around the earth on um, legal grounds. I mean, that's what they proposed and that's what they did. And that's what we've witnessed. And there's just a lot of colluding going on with that. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of ticking of the box and, and so-called progressive and liberal people unable to look past the Murdoch version of the truth when it comes to Julian um, in ways that astound and profoundly disappoint me. 